Welcome to episode number 39 of the Road to Cinema podcast, featuring producer Philip Jane Rimshaw, as we discuss the Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign for Orson Welles' last film, The Other Side of the Wind. May of 2015 marks the 100th birthday of Orson Welles, the Oscar-winning filmmaker behind Citizen Kane and the film noir classic Touch of Evil. In the early 1970s, Orson Welles embarked on what would be his last film. The Other Side of the Wind tells the story of down-on-his-luck director Jake Hannaford, played by John Huston, who is about to celebrate his 70th birthday in the shadow of a new film that he hopes will be his comeback, but will may also be his professional and personal ruin. Peter Bogdanovich stars in the film as Brooks Oderlake, an up-and-coming filmmaker and former Jake Hannaford protege, who is both a friend and rival to Jake Hannaford in the film. The film also features cameos from Dennis Hopper, Paul Mazursky, Henry Jaglum, Mercedes McCambridge, and filmmaker Claude Chabral. After more than 30 years since the death of Orson Welles, the footage that has been locked in a vault in France has finally been cleared for release. Producer Philippe Chain Rimshaw, along with Frank Marshall and Peter Bogdanovich, are now in the process of organizing this material, along with a post-production and editing team who will use drafts of The Other Side of the Wind along with personal notes from Orson Welles to create a cut of The Other Side of the Wind, which is in line with Orson Welles' original vision for the film. We'll talk on the podcast how you can help finish Orson Welles' last film through the Indiegogo campaign, now featured on the website orsonslastfilm.com. Producer Philip Jane Rimshaw also shares how he's been organizing with his team screenplays and notes that give a detailed analysis of how Orson wanted the final film to be edited. We'll also go into the innovative editing style that Orson had originated in his rough cut for both the Jake Hannaford birthday party as well as the film within a film that Jake Hannaford is trying to make as his comeback. Among the filmmakers that have shown their support for the Indiegogo campaign for Orson's last film include Brad Bird, Steven Soderbergh, Edgar Wright, Joe Cornish, Noah Baumbach, Wes Anderson, Clint Eastwood, Brett Ratner, Jason Reitman, and J.J. Abrams. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, please visit jogroadproductions.com. You can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and write us a nice review on the iTunes podcast page. By engaging with us on social media, you'll be entered into a contest to win a free download of the Final Draft screenwriting software brought to you by our friends at Final Draft. And now we join producer Philip Jane Rimshaw as he discusses the process behind creating the Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign for Orson Welles' last film, The Other Side of the Wind, which you can find out more information on by visiting orsonslastfilm.com. How much prep went into uh, the sort of creating the Indiegogo campaign itself? I mean, was this sort of months and months in the works or even... Yeah, it it started in December. And did you sort of know as far as sort of what your goal would be in terms of uh, amount of money you wanted to raise, what some of the perks would be? Was that kind of all... Uh, that evolved. Yeah. Um, it, it started. I, I, we we knew we were going to be somewhere in that range, in the two million dollar range. Um, so it, it 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 did it did change. We weren't quite sure. I mean, it's we. I really wanted to be certain that 
that that objective was uh, was accurate. That it wasn't a case where you know we would need two and a half, and but we were looking to raise two. Um, I also didn't want to go too low, and not knowing, you know, not knowing how successful it would be. Um, but the perks we, we we worked on over the course of months, trying to think, um, you know, what would be the appetite for an Orson Welles fan? Um, what could we offer? Um, and, 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 and how do we introduce them over the course of a long campaign? Yeah. Yeah, no, I've noticed, uh, I mean, you've had some videos go up in the last few weeks, uh, one with Brett Ratner, where he's given his support, and then with Wes Anderson, Noah Baumbach. Uh, was that also key for you in sort of galvanizing support from the film community itself? It was. We wanted to give some, you know, some context. Um, I, I was surprised in in uh, in talking to millennials that a lot of them did not know who Orson Welles was, and 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 a lot of them knew about Citizen Kane even if they hadn't seen Citizen Kane, and it was putting the two together, but also bringing out some some young filmmakers and who you know who were hip and and who would help you know put, put Wells in perspective. Um, and kind of the you know tastemakers who would say this is worthwhile, and so you know we felt like the the filmmakers who, who came to support us and kind of you know were our influencers, um, they came from a varied film backgrounds, um, but all of them you know had had you know not only eclectic taste but but cool taste and and they appealed to to different fans. On the Indiegogo page, you kind of break down what you're using all of the money for and it seems like a lot of it is sort of in the sort of range of organizing and sort of scanning the materials uh did you find that since there are so there's so much uh both probably audio and uh film you know visual footage is that difficult to organize in terms of syncing it and really sort of developing kind of a, a fluid timeline to work with well it's it's starting you know the money that we were raising through Indiegogo is just a fraction of the overall budget, um, and and this was and we, we wanted and, and part of the approach and part of the you know philosophical approach to um, you know why Indiegogo and and what did that enable us to do? It was we wanted to do this with you know a certain integrity in place and in keeping with how Orson Orson went about his project, and we wanted to to be able to deliver a finished film. Now, in going through, um, you know, since November, as we were going through and researching and, and putting in place a blueprint by which we we're going to finish the film, we found that there was more information, you know, both in terms of scripts and memos and things of that nature um, than we thought there would be. And also the, the negative, uh, there was way more materials, 1.6 tons of materials, and not only, you know, just the sheer volume or weight uh, but also the way that it was already cut up. Um, you know, certain cans had up to 13 reels inside of each one. Um, so it was very fragmented and, and disorganized. So it's, it was a lot more work than we thought uh, in terms of the, the prep work, just the catalog and, and going through the annotated script and, and being able to pre-identify, you know, when things were shot, what sequences they're from. Um, and, and if things were reshot, then which shot or sequences supersede others? Orson would change. He would rewrite the script on the fly. 
and you know during the night and then have it typed up in the morning and it's one of those things where it's you know we want it to be very thorough in our process so that cost breakdown you know is really the, the you know what we anticipated this taking and it evolved it evolved from november all the way through until today uh and we we knew we needed to uh, have more capital resources for certain things. We also earmarked a lot of money for music licensing. Orson called for certain jazz standards in his in his annotated script and the cutting script, and we wanted to make sure. And those were all very expensive, and we wanted to make sure that we would have sufficient budget to acquire those. Is there also uh, going to be an original music score that's going to be made as well? There will be. I mean, we don't know until we have an assembly. We don't know what that is. It's, uh, you know, it, it's a, we know what certain things call for. It, it, it's, it's a little more difficult to get a sense for the film within the film. Um, I know that in some of the, the sequences that Orson had locked already, he had mixed them, and, and some of them just play with wind. I mean, literally, you know, the other side of the wind, and it's just, it, it's meant to be, it, it's meant to have that open sound to it, and... You know, until we until we have a, a, a an assembly um, from beginning to end, it, it's very difficult to to think about the score. Yeah, um, I was reading. Uh, I think it may have been on Wellsnet. Uh, I'm not totally sure, but um, you guys have uh, Alfonso Goncalves as the editor who worked on True Detective. Is that accurate? That is accurate. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a great uh, great talent uh, to have on board. Is he right now working on some of the you know any of the footage that's coming in, or he's he's still going through all the the scripts. And as I mean, as I mentioned, we we had five linear feet of scripts, and our post supervisor um, created an Excel spreadsheet tracking the changes from the first shooting script all the way through production to. Um, so the cutting script plus pickup. So he's been, he's been really going through that material first, and and so and, and beyond True Detective, um, which you know he did a phenomenal job with. I mean, he also cut um, Winner's Bone and Only Lovers Left Alive, uh, East of the Southern Wild, uh, Iris Axe films. I think he worked on four of those. So it's you know, and then he's 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 very intuitive. Um, and, and each film has a different feel. So that's what I really liked, because this one has a very specific feel to it um, in terms of its cutting rhythm. And, and I like that he didn't force his style onto any film, that he took on the, the characteristics of, of the narrative that he was working on. Yeah, um, it seems like, you know, from reading about the film and also seeing um, sort of those rough scenes that sort of been have been floating around online for the past few years that Orson had a very uh, sort of innovative editing style that he approached for the film and it seems like something that had never really been done at that time you know this was in the early 70s uh, when you I don't know if you had the, I mean if you had the chance at the very beginning to watch the very early rough cut was that sort of innovative editing style something that uh, you really found kind of captivating when you were watching that footage yeah, I mean, it's, I, I I watched a lot of raw footage before I even watched the, before I saw the cut footage. I mean, for me, it started with script, um, and that was that was six years ago, almost to the day, because it was six years ago in Cannes uh, when I was told that these rights were available. And to me, it started with the script, and then I and then I watched I don't remember if I ten ten or eleven hours of of raw footage, 
and then I and then I saw um, the various cuts and then the forty minute work print. So uh, yeah, I mean it's it's it, it was it's a very innovative approach, especially for the period and the fact that you know kind of conceptually that it's a documentary um, and then it's a film within the film and it's it's these two films and and it's as if Orson's not taking authorship over either one, but it, it's very helpful that his. 40-minute cut isn't sequential. It's um, it's a, it's a minute or two from all throughout the film, and so he very much set the tone for the way that he wanted the film edited. And and beyond that, there's also a kind of a loose assembly above the other sequences, where you know how he's treating the material, um, even though it was shot over the course of six years, and and. You know, certain end scenes, and, and within scenes, you have shots from you know from various continents, uh, years apart. Um, you already know how he's handling and how he was blocking it, and a lot of it was obviously done out of necessity because he didn't have certain actors. So he has actors playing with their back to camera, which um, you see in a lot of his films, especially in films like Othello, where it becomes a stylistic choice. But of course, it's born out of necessity. And and you see the way that you know the way that he was blocking it for edit. Yeah, no, it's um it's something that he sort of approached on many of his films when you know he had trouble getting financing, where he would sort of shoot, you know, a few pieces here. He would maybe wait a few months or even a few years, and then he would go back and shoot more. Uh, so he you know he sort of shot in a way where he knew that he would have to go back and pick up another part of the scene later on. Well, yeah, that's when you have John Huston enter the film three years into production. And and a lot of this was because Orson was self-financing, which I'm sure you know. And so he had to, he would break for, for months and, and, and go off and, and make money. And then uh, whatever money he was able to make, then in, invest it into his art. Yeah. Um, so reading about, um, you know, the nature of the film in the last few years, uh, you know, the, the footage, the negative that's been locked in the vault in France, um, from what I understand, I mean, it's like pristine, clean. It's, uh, I mean, it's never been touched. It's, you know, very, um, would you say that it almost like looks like almost like a brand new movie in a way? Well, I mean, it's still 70 stock, um, yeah. but of course, it's, um, it's, the, it's the negative looks as if it's never been handled. Um, the perps, you know, were never punctured. It's, um, it was amazing. Um, and, and for me, not having worked with a lot of celluloid, it was, you know, I was really looking at the expressions of the various technicians who were there with us on the first day we had access to the, to the warehouse, to the vault. And, um, and I was really taking cue from them. But to see, you know, those, as they were opening can after can, to see those wide grins, um, and just to see, I mean, you know, that also visually you can just tell. I mean, it's just, um, I was worried about certain things that I had heard about, like vinegar syndrome, where things aren't stored properly, and it's something that you can smell the moment you open the can. Um, but they were, you know, they, they were just so excited. Um, it's, it's rare to see something that well preserved. Yeah. Is it true also, is the movie in um, 133 aspect ratio? It is. Sort of the square aspect. Yeah, just, I wasn't sure based on um, what I've read. But um, that's interesting. So was that always the intention of Orson to shoot it in that aspect ratio? Because I think, I mean, at the time in the 70s, I think, you know, 185 and uh, sort of the cinemascope ratios were more popular. But I guess he was very attached to shooting it more in that academy ratio. It's, I mean, his framing would suggest that. Um, and it's, 
it's, it's, it's beautiful within you know the, the way that he uses that aspect ratio I, I assume it's something that he was he was comfortable with um, I think he had shot that in that ratio his entire career um, I would have to go back and think but I know that there were multiple versions of touch of evil released on that um, on the masters of cinema release I remember that there was a 185 and a 133. Is there going to be sort of a definitive cut of the movie, or do you think there may also be multiple cuts? No, I, I think this film only comes together one way. Um, I think we have enough materials where it takes the guesswork out of it. You know, it's um, we we definitely, you know, we feel very strongly that we can approximate, um, you know, the, the 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 final cut of this film, and then you know, leave as little as possible to interpretation. But I don't think it's a scenario in which th this is left open-ended. It's orsonslastfilm.com, and that will redirect to the Indiegogo campaign. And, um, and we're, I think we're at around uh, 250,000. Uh, we're looking to raise 2 million. And, uh, and we just put up some, some perks like, you know, producer credits in three different tiers, kind of for on the higher end spectrum. Uh, we just introduced uh, a T-shirt, um, which has uh, you know, which has Maverick written on it, kind of alluding to Orson's AFI acceptance speech, where he accepts it on behalf of all the Mavericks, which we think is really special. And we've been working on that tee for quite some time just to to get it right. And then there's um, you know, there's Blu-rays and signed posters, and we're going to be introducing a new poster, hopefully later this week. Uh, and again, another thing that we've been working on for for well over a month, and we just we didn't want to put it up there before it was absolutely perfect but we're it's going to go it kind of harkens back to the mid-70s had the film come out in like 70 76 77 and it, it's absolutely beautiful and so so we encourage you know i encourage people to go there and and check it out if you feel compelled by it to contribute it's, it's really important for us to to have those capital resources to get this done to get it done right and uh, and not have this drag out for another you know year because um it's it's been uh, it's been a tough process. Yeah, just on the on the Indiegogo site, uh, your goal is to sort of have a, a a release out there in early 2016. Is that accurate? I mean, it's you know, this is not a deadline-driven enterprise. I mean, it never was, and it really can't be. Um, obviously, for us right now, is is the more capital resources, the more money we have. Um, the faster we can move. And what we've been doing um, this past these past few months is we've been we kind of shifted strategy in terms of how we're dealing with the negative. And um, we only had two people on staff in Paris, but um, but we have uh, we have more just human resources here in LA. So we're going to start shipping um, the negative here to be to to scan and to process. So, um, you know, and, and we simply, we, we need, the, the more money we have, the faster we can do that. Uh, and, and, you know, that would ensure a release, at least the festival release, you know, end of this year. Now, you know, if we don't have it, we have to work at it slower. And then, you know, it might slip into 2016. But it's, um, it, it's very difficult for us to offer any type of date. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for um, taking the time to talk. And, you know, I really encourage everybody to, you know, go to the Indiegogo site and contribute uh, because this is something that I've, you know, had my eye on for many years. And uh, it's great to see that you're really uh, taking a huge initiative to get this film done. It's, it's 
a wonderful 100th birthday present to Orson. And, um, and when I first brought this up to his daughter, to, to, to Beatrice, who's been just such a, such a wonderful help in this process um, and really embraced both our approach to it and, and embraced the, the crowdfunding approach, um, she just thought that there, there could be no better 100th birthday present to her father than for us to, to finish this film and, and to do so with the help of his fans who have always been very vocal. And so um, here's an opportunity to, to, to lend that voice and, uh, and help us in the process.